Good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. I'm the pastor of Trinity Church Unley. Today, we're starting a new series looking at the book of Ephesians. But before we get into the Bible, I want to tell you a little about this book. We've got a series of these books that usually sit on the kids' shelves. They're written by Max Licardo, and they depict the world of wooden toys called Wemmicks. The stories are told through the eyes of the main character, Punchinello. I've got a a picture of him here for you. It's worth knowing that the Wemmicks are not particularly kind to each other. And in one of the stories, they've taken to marking the good and the clever and the special Wemmicks with gold stars. The less pretty and the scratched or the the poorly behaved Wemmicks, well, well, they get dots instead of stars. And in the story, Punchinello, well, he ends up covered in dots. The other Wemmicks say, he's not a good wooden person. And after a while, weighed down by the dots, Punchinello, well, he begins to believe them and he eventually says, I'm not a good Wemmick. One day, Punchinello musters his bravery and he decides to go and visit Eli the woodcarver, the creator of the Wemmicks. As he steps into Eli's workshop, he sees how big Eli is and he's about to flee, about to run away. So scared is he of the size of Eli when Eli calls out to him by name. Punchinello, you know my name? Of course I do, says Eli. I made you. And a few pages later, we read Punchinello talking to Eli and he says this, he says, I can't walk fast, I can't jump, my paint is peeling, why do I matter to you? And here's Eli's response. Because you are mine. Because you are mine. Uh, This interaction between Eli and Punchinello it it seems, at least for me, to capture the, the sentiment of the first chapter in Ephesians. See, in Ephesians, we learn that our maker, the God who created us and the world in which we live, we learn that he chose us. And we learn that it had nothing really to do with us in our choosing. It's not because we're more special than anyone else. God chose us according to his pleasure and goodwill. And as we read through chapter 1 today, we'll see that not only has God chosen us, but he's lavished blessing upon blessing on us and he's done it all out of the riches of his grace. We didn't deserve those blessings. They're given to us in grace. And I think... Knowing this, it's so important for us today, realising who we are in Christ is, I think, life-changing in almost every possible way. Ephesians chapter 1 is great news for us. But despite it being good news for us, the blessings that we have and knowing those blessings, I'm not sure that that's the ultimate purpose of Ephesians chapter 1. Because Ephesians chapter 1, it's not really about us as individuals. It's not really even about the church, although the church is certainly mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1. 
Instead, I think this is a chapter about God and about his grace and about his glory and about his power and about his authority. And I think this chapter is written to drive us towards praising God, to drive us towards making his glory known both within the church and to the rest of the world and in the heavenly realms. That, I think, is what Ephesians chapter 1 is about. Well, as we kick our time off in this letter, I think it's worth mentioning just very briefly that the letter to the Ephesian church, it seems a little different to some of Paul's other letters. Unlike, say, the letter to the Corinthian church or the letter to the Colossian church, Paul doesn't seem to be answering specific questions that have been directed to him. And neither does he seem to be addressing specific people as he does, for example, at the end of the letter to the Roman church. But Paul, he did know the Ephesus church or the church in Ephesus. He founded it and he spent more than two years there. And so you might wonder, why doesn't Paul give a shout out to his friends in Ephesus? In answering that question, some of the scholars suspect that this letter was written as a circular In other words, they suggest that Paul intended it not only to be read in Ephesus, but also in the other churches in the region. And this might explain, at least in some part, why the letter doesn't make specific references to people in the church of Ephesus. Does any of that matter? Well, not really, except in this way. If the letter to the Ephesian church is a circular letter, a letter that Paul wanted read in all of the churches in the region, then surely that makes this letter really useful for us as a church today. Because in a circular letter, Paul would address the things that he thinks all the churches really need to know. And so that means he'd want us to know these things in our church today. So, What does Ephesians chapter 1 say? Well, we're going to tackle the chapter in two sections today. If you're on our mailing list, then you would have received an outline from me showing you those two sections. If you're visiting church online today, you can see the outline by clicking on the notes tab. I think it's up here, just above the live chat stream. The first section of this chapter includes verses 3 to 14. These verses outline God's story and the blessings that we have received. The second section includes verses 15 to 23. These verses are a prayer that really echoes the theme of the first part of the chapter, but the prayer asks that God would work amongst the church that the implications of God's story would be understood and known by the church. So let's start with our first section, verses 3 to 14. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 1. And follow along with me as I read and speak today. I want you to notice up front here that this section is bookended by the praise of God. Praising God is kind of like brackets that sit around this passage. Let me show you. In verse 3 we read this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. See, Paul's instruction is to praise God because of his blessings to us. And then in verse 14, the other bookend of this passage, we read this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, 
the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Can you see the bookends in this passage? The praise of God and the praise of his glory. Now these verses, they contain what I think is perhaps some of the most encouraging and and some of the most loved descriptions about what we have as Christians, what's been given to us. But they're written in order that we would praise God. See, we're about to read some of the greatest blessings that you could ever read of. And these words are treasured by many of us because of what they mean for us. But I want you to remember as we look at this passage, it's not primarily about us. The bookends show us that. Primarily what's on view here is God's story and what God has done for us. And that matters because otherwise, as we see the blessings that we have, we might grow conceited or arrogant or rest in our own certainty and surety. But Paul's not wanting us to do that. Rather, he's wanting us to see what God has done for us, not so that we'd boast to our neighbours about how good we are, but that we would praise God. Now, this isn't a new concept in the Bible, is it? Last week, Jeff asked us to wake up each day in the week that's just gone and begin the day by praying the last two verses of Psalm 13. I wonder if you were able to do that a few times this week. Let me remind you of those verses, the prayer that Jeff encourages us to pray. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Ephesians chapter 1 is kind of saying a similar thing, isn't it? Paul's helping us to see how we've been caught up or included in God's story. Now, of course, there are benefits for us in that. But before we boast in the benefits, we need to remember the purpose of this passage is to drive us to praise God. Praise the God who's given us these things. So what are the blessings? Well, it seems that Paul groups them into three categories. Uh, Again, you might like to refer to the handout to see those three sections. The first of those sections is in verse 3 to 6 where we see what God's already done for us as those who are part of his people. These outline the blessings that have kind of happened in the past, you could say. Let me read these verses to you beginning at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. What's God done for us? He's chosen us He's predestined us for adoption to sonship according to his pleasure and his goodwill. I wonder if you notice the echoes to the Old Testament in this passage. Right back at the start of the Bible in Genesis, we read that God chose Abram and God promised to bless him. Now that wasn't because Abram 
was more worthy than anyone else. It, it simply was that God chose him. And later we read that God chose Israel as a nation, not because of their righteousness, but simply because he chose to love them and call them his own. Can you see how we today, as those in the church, are being wrapped up into God's story? He's blessed us by choosing us. Now, I was one of those kids in the PE class who was always last to be chosen in the groups. I don't know if they still do this today, but back when I was at school, the way this would work in the PE class is the teacher would select two captains and then those captains, one by one, each would choose a person from the class until their teams were fully allocated. I can remember so often being one of the last few to be chosen. It's kind of demoralising, isn't it? But here we read, we are chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. This is terrific news for us. Because today you might not be thinking that you're worthy of being included in God's story. And I want you to see that God's choosing has never been about your own worthiness. God didn't choose Israel because of their worth. In fact, the Bible calls them a stiff-necked people. God didn't choose Abram because of his worth and neither does he choose us because we are better or more moral or clever or smarter or better looking than anyone else. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you thought you were in because of your good looks. But on the flip side, and this is what really matters, I think, is that our unworthiness doesn't count us out. See, I mean, of course, you'd have to have tickets on yourself to think that God chose you to be part of his family because of your beauty or your brains. But the flip side is equally true, isn't it? God chose us despite our ugliness and our stupidity, despite our past behavior. He chose us before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose us before the creation of the world He chose us to be holy and set apart and blameless. It also tells us that in love, he predestined us to sonship through Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill. If you've got your Bibles open, have a look with me at verse 5. You'll see those words there. Some of you may have a footnote against the word sonship or adoption in the passage there. That's a footnote that's worth considering. The NIV Bible that we use at church on Sundays says this. It says, the Greek word for adoption to sonship is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. And so adoption here then means gaining the full legal rights of a legitimate child, rights that include an inheritance, rights in the sense that you're struck off from the record and struck on as a new person, a son or a daughter of these new parents. This is a full change in identity. You might have been Mr. Jones or Miss Smith, but now you are a son or daughter of God. For those of you who have been around Christian circles for a while, you will have no doubt realised that there is some debate around the terms election and free will and predestination. And, And these verses, they have a lot to say to that debate. But rather than get too caught up there today, what I want you to see here is that our choosing before the creation of the world, our predestination to adoption and sonship, should again drive us to the praise of God. Knowing these things should cause us to praise God. 
Here's what P.T. O'Brien says in his commentary. It was God's intention that his free and glad choice of men and women to be his sons and daughters might redound, that means to contribute greatly, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verses 3 to 6, we see what God's already done for us in Jesus. We've been chosen, adopted, and all of this is an act of God's grace. And so we should be moved to praise God for that grace because of what he's done to us. In verses 7 to 10, the blessings for the church continue on. And again, these are tremendous things, eternity-shaping things. I'm going to read them to you starting at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. See, if verses 3 to 6 were about blessings that had happened in the past, verses 7 to 10 spell out the blessings that we have in the here and now. These blessings are that we've been redeemed and forgiven. I think most of us kind of understand what it means to be forgiven. We're pretty familiar with that term, but we may be a little less familiar with the idea of redemption. In the Bible, redemption is often associated with a slave being freed, perhaps through the paying of a ransom. It's worth knowing that the redemption or redemption plays a big role in God's story. You might remember that the Israelites were once enslaved in Egypt and they were redeemed by God, freed by God. That event happened at the Passover where the angel of death struck down all the firstborn males unless your house had the blood of a lamb sprinkled over the doorpost. Today, slavery still exists in our world and people are still held in captivity by others at great distress and people are still being redeemed from slavery and there's great joy in that. But it's not just those who are held against their will who are enslaved in the physical bounds of a house. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, we'll see that we were all once enslaved to the ways of the world and to the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And I'm kind of reminded here again of our story of that poor old Wemmick Punchinello. He was a slave to the the never-ending process of trying to get more gold stars and ridding himself of the dreaded dots. Perhaps for you, slavery is more about amassing things, a bigger and better, better car, fancier trips away. Maybe you're a slave to climbing the ladder at work or climbing the ladder in your circle of friends. Here in Ephesians, we are to praise God because we've been redeemed from all of that, from our slavery and our bondage to the world, and God's done that as an act of grace. In verses 11 to 14, we read of the blessings that we still have to look forward to, blessings that include our salvation in the age to come, blessings that include our inheritance, a place in God's family, blessings that include salvation and life. And these blessings, we've just skimmed over them, haven't we? But they are magnificent, aren't they? In this chapter, we read of the surety of our salvation. 
Ephesians chapter 1 gives us confidence that we will know what happens when we die. Because we know that we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And all of this, our past, our present and our future blessings and inheritance, all that should drive us towards the praise of God and the declaration of his glory. I want us to pause here and just think carefully about what our praise of God might look like today. I think part of it must be that we'd sing and learn about God and adore him and worship him when we come together as a church on Sundays. I think that's part of the reason why it's still good for us to be meeting as a church on Sunday mornings, even when we can't physically meet together. This is a good opportunity as funny as it is doing this in our lounge rooms, to sing to God and to read his word and to speak to him and to sit under his instruction. But given the lavishness of his blessings to us, past blessings, current blessings, future blessings, surely our praise of God has got to extend beyond just what we do on a Sunday morning. Later in this letter, we'll see Paul flesh out some, some really practical examples of what it means to live for God and to praise his name in the way we conduct our lives chapter 5 we read this follow god's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god now some of you remember last year when we looked at the book of romans that transition point in the book at the start of verse 12, where we read this, after having considered all that God has done, his story in the first 11 chapters of Romans, we read this at the start of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so I've been chewing over this idea of what it means to praise God over the course of this week. And I was reminded of a news story I read last year. It's a tragic story and and perhaps not entirely suitable for very young years. So I'll try and gloss over some of the detail. It involves this. One evening a police officer who lived in an apartment complex coming home from work mistakenly entered the apartment one floor below hers. She entered what she thought was her apartment and she found a man standing in what she thought was her living room thinking she was thinking he was an intruder in her house. She shot and killed this unarmed man in what was his own home. Terrible situation. Big mistakes being made. It was compounded by the fact that she was a white police officer and he was a black man and there were allegations raised in the way in which the case was investigated and the way in which the case was prosecuted. It became a huge story across the world. I want you to imagine for a moment what it must have felt like to be part of the family of the man who was killed. He was by all accounts innocent in his own home. Imagine being the man's brother or sister. Most people would have been furious and appalled at the injustice of it all. But these are the words of the victim's brother to the policewoman during her trial. I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I personally want the best for you, he said. 
I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what my brother would want. And the best would be, give your life to Christ. And after asking permission from the judge, the brother of the deceased man walked across the room and he embraced this policewoman. I think this story is amazing on so many levels. Here is a man who knows he's genuinely forgiven and genuinely wants the best for this woman under God. What a powerful way to declare the majesty and the power of God. See, here is a man who is living his life in the praise of God. Facing what most would consider to be an enemy, he turns to her with her best interests at heart. And in doing so, he points to the character of God and he praises God through the way in which he lives his life. See, living for the praise of God's glory, it doesn't just mean singing on a Sunday morning. It's not just about that. It's about trying to live a life that makes the mystery of God known. Well, the second part of chapter 1 is a prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. And at its simplest, it's a prayer that's asking God to give the Ephesian church a deeper knowledge of God and the blessings that he's poured out on them. Let me read to you from verse 17. You might like to follow along with your Bibles. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. It's important for, the, for Paul that the Ephesian church grows in its knowledge of God, that the church understands what God has already done for them. Remember, this is not a brand new church with, with no previous knowledge of God. No, Paul spent two years with them, so Paul's prayer is that the church might know God better. And as you read through the second half of this chapter, can you see the echoes to the first part of the chapter? See, what Paul's praying is that the Ephesian church would grasp the the reality of how they've been blessed and that they'd understand what this means for them as a church. That they keep knowing God better. I've been married to Meredith for 17 years and it's true that each year I do get to know her a bit better, but it's been quite a few years now where Meredith says something that I never knew before. Really, I know all the stories there is to know. For example, last week we watched some movies about rock climbing. I know that when Meredith used to abseil, when she was a scout and adventurer, I know the story is about where a friend of her tied off the line, leaving her stuck midair, waiting to be rescued. I know the stories of her rescuing others who she was looking after, who were too terrified to abseil the rest of the way down cliffs. Paul's prayer is that we'd know God, that we'd know what he's achieved for us and that we'd understand the implications of that, that we'd get to know God better as we spend time with him and read his word. And there are three things specifically that Paul wants the Ephesian church and by uh, implication us to know. The first is that the church would know the hope to which God's called them. The second is that Paul wants the church to know that they are God's treasured possession and that he'll redeem them on the last day. 
And thirdly, Paul wants the church to know of the great power that's available to the Christian church. That power was seen in the resurrection of Jesus. It's seen in his exaltation. And that power is available to us also. We've yet to see this in Ephesians. But this is a letter in which the reality of spiritual warfare is laid out for us to see. And here is the resource that will enable the church to stand firm. The power of God. Power that was seen clearly in the raising of Jesus from the dead. In this first chapter of Ephesians, we've seen many blessings that the church has. We've seen Paul pray that the church would know and comprehend the blessings it has. So that it would be able to stand and exist as the body of Christ. But we've also seen clearly, I hope, that these blessings should drive us towards praising the God who has lavished these things on us. Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you great thanks for what you've done for us, for the blessings that you've poured out upon us, choosing us, redeeming us, forgiving us, adopting us into your family. We pray that you would keep giving us eyes that see what you've done for us and hearts that know you. Help us to live for you and to praise you in the lives that we lead. As we work our way through this book of Ephesians, we pray that you'd help us to understand the implications of this letter for us as a church today. In Jesus' name, Amen.